If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John. Uh, excuse me, the Gospel of John. <clears throat> I was told last week that that's become so routine that uh, someone quotes it as I say. If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John. But what wasn't routine is I said, when you get there, say word. So when you get there, say word. <clears throat> Let us pray first. Father, as we come to your word this morning, it's our heart's desire to be moved. That our spirit would be encouraged and exhorted. Lord, that even we might be broken from our sin. We pray that as we open your word and read the wonderful text of your word. That by your spirit, you would you would fill this place. That you would illuminate our minds to understand and to comprehend that which the disciples even struggle to understand and comprehend at first. We pray that you would cause our hearts to love your word. And and God, we pray that you would strengthen our lives to live according to your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us begin reading in verse 12. <clears throat> On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason, also, the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask, began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his wife in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. The title of the message is The King is Coming. And as Dr. David alluded to earlier, after he read that certainly this passage is about the triumphal entry of Christ and celebrates the coming of Christ. So the King is coming 
But we also have this sense as we read through the text and look at God's word and the promise of scripture that the king is still coming. He is still going to return and bring his church, his people to be with him, to be with him eternally, forever in glory. And so the text ends with that. The father will honor him. But before we get there this morning, let us first see in this text that Christ the king shows us that true glory is seen through humility. That's one of the truths that we learn in this text. True glory is seen through humility. And that Christ's lowly service of death on the cross secures our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. So as disciples, as disciples of Christ, we must see the great cost and the great reward of following King Jesus And the great cost is that when we would lay down our lives to follow him. And the great reward is that we would be with him eternally in his presence. And so this text teaches us this this morning. It was common in Jesus's day and uh, even in the early first centuries, uh, several centuries after Christ had come, that you would see the royal welcome when a king would come into town. When a king would come into a city, they would basically roll out the red carpet. The king would come marching in on a horse, usually after victory from battle. And people would line the streets and they would hail the king as the great victor, the one who had brought security, the one who had had conquered lands and had expanded their territory and brought profitability and fortune into the kingdom. People would gather the streets as the king would come in and that's what they would do as they would hail him. But we see a very similar scene in this chapter. Jesus on his triumphal entry. People are gathering around the city. Uh, They're leaving the city actually and coming out to the Mount of Olives. And they're coming out to see Jesus, to see this one that they've heard so much about. And so John is narrating for us this day that we've commonly called the triumphal entry or we've called it Palm Sunday. Because it's the day before Easter where we, or Sunday before Easter, where we celebrate the coming of the King. And so we see that there's a crowd gathered here. And verse 12 tells us this large crowd had come to the feast, or who had come to the feast. They heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they left and they were coming out to meet him. We could say this crowd was composed of many. Josephus, one historian, exaggerated a bit and he gave giving his account of how many people were there he said it was 2.7 million people around that would have been gathered there to worship for the passover feast in jerusalem at this time a more accurate number would probably be somewhere between 100 to 150,000 pilgrims that had come to the city to worship and to celebrate this passover feast and so Get the picture. I want us to see the picture here of 100 to 150,000 people coming out from Jerusalem or on the hillside surrounding Jerusalem where they had been living, possibly in the Kidron Valley where they had been living between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And so they're all coming and they come up on the Mount of Olives to see Jesus as he is coming to descend from the Mount of Olives and go up to Jerusalem. And so they 
gather there, three, maybe four different groups. Verse 12 tells us the pilgrims that had gathered for the feast. Verse 18 confirms that this group were, uh, were people who had come for the Passover. They had heard about the signs that Jesus had performed and they had come and they wanted to see who this Jesus was. Verse 16 tells of a second group that was there. The second group would have been the disciples. They were there with Jesus, and we learned that the disciples were part of this distinguished second group. Maybe a third group reveals in verse 17 is that uh, those who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead, those who had been at the tomb, the graveside, when Lazarus, when Jesus called Lazarus forth and then raised him from the dead. They had witnessed what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus. And so they were there celebrating Jesus as he's coming in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 19 reveals possibly a fourth group, and that would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees were gathered there as well. It wasn't just all those who were praising Jesus. There were some there who were had angst toward Jesus. They were frustrated. They, they were frustrated that, that they couldn't catch this one, this Jesus. They were those who were plotting his death. And so the first crowd, we we see that when they heard he was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they began to wave them. What we learn about these branches, we, we learn this uniquely from the Gospel of John, from his account. We don't learn the type of trees. This account is recorded in all four Gospels, but we don't learn the type of trees from any of the other accounts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We learn this specifically from John. John gives us this detail, I think, to indicate the regality of the of the scene, how regal this was. This king was coming and it fits with what John is teaching us about Jesus, the king. They're offering Jesus a royal welcome that's fit for a king as they're waving these palm branches. And these palm branches are significant for the people of Israel. They're significant because one, they they, they show a symbol of ruling power. Later, when the Jews would have an uprising against the Romans during the, the Jewish wars against Rome, palms were placed on the coins. They were stamped as the coins were struck. They were stamped by the insurgents to show that, that, that Israel or that the Jews were rising up against Rome. The palms were used significantly in the Feast of uh, Tabernacles as people would gather, pilgrims would gather and, and come in and celebrate God's work in God's hand in delivering them from Egypt. And so palms were used to celebrate their deliverance. Palms were used in the rededication of the temple. Palms were used for Israel's national hope to symbolize that that it was a national hope, sort of like our flag for America. And so palms began a, became a great symbol of nationalism. Israel has used palm branches throughout their history as they came together to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which we saw in chapter 7 and chapter 8, where Jesus claims to be the source of living water and he claims to be the very light of the world. And so as they gather, they're shouting. They're shouting, Hosanna! They're shouting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This word that they are shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna. They're shouting this with exclamation. They're excited that Jesus is coming in. 
And the meaning of this word, Hosanna, it, it means save us now. As we see in Psalm 118.25, save us now. It, it, it was a prayer of deliverance. But it was also an expression of enthusiasm and, and great joy. Joy over Jesus' arrival. They were enthused over who he was. And over what he had done and what they hoped he was about to do. You see, all of this is fitting with a kingly, royal welcome. They were ready. They were ready for Jesus to come as the political ruler. And so they quote this psalm. Think about it. They attribute to him messianic titles in this psalm. They say there in verse 13, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic title. They're looking for the one that comes that God has sent. Then they even say, even the king of Israel, the king of Israel. These are messianic declarations that the people are ascribing. Another unique element of John's account is he shows the order of events to be different than the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke. In the synoptics, if you read this account in the synoptic gospels, they began declaring Jesus's praise after he mounted on the colt to ride down the hill to descend and then to ascend. But the gospel of John, John records it differently for us. John places Jesus, he reverses the detail and he, he, he places Jesus mounting uh, the young donkey after they ascribe praise to Jesus. Now, I think it's an important distinction for us to see. I'm, I'm not just trying to point out nuances that don't mean anything. John wants to communicate to us about Jesus' kingship. He intends for us to see something about who King Jesus is and what he's all about. Jesus is living out a parable before the people as they're gathered there, and he's telling about the distinctiveness of his kingdom His kingdom is different than any other. He's correcting the political aspirations of the crowd. One would expect during a royal welcome that the one that was being heralded would ride in on a great war horse. They would expect the king to come in on this horse that shows might and military power. This wasn't the case. Jesus rides in on a young donkey. Hardly a sign of military might. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of gentleness. And this is the point. Jesus' kingship isn't one of military might or war. It's a, it's a kingship of peace. In fact, Jerusalem, city of peace. He's coming into the city of peace. He is the gentle king riding into the city of peace. And so Jesus' kingship is one of gentleness it's one of humility it's one of service and not of being served it's one of faithfulness and love not of fear it's one of fulfillment and not of failure it's one of triumph and not defeat Jesus's kingship is one of great hope and great humility so as Jesus acts out this parable before the people that were gathered there and the disciples the Holy Spirit will take this parable And he will use it to transform their expectations of Christ as king after his death. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. As as we read this morning in Zechariah chapter 9. 
Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, and he's endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Scripture prophesies of the coming king, the Messiah, Jesus. Scripture prophesies just how he will enter Jerusalem. And so Jesus, keeping with Scripture and fulfilling the plan of God, we see him carrying out this prophecy and fulfilling this prophecy by coming in on a donkey. But notice the difference between Zechariah's prophecy that we just read and what's spoken in verse 15. He says, fear not, in verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. I think he's merged a a thought from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, with this text in Zechariah and this prophecy. Isaiah 49 says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Listen, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. This word, do not fear. I think it's a word that still quiets our souls in the presence of God today. No matter no matter what seasons or trials we're walking through, we hear the words of this passage, fear not, do not fear. Fear not, child of God. God is in control. Fear not the circumstances surrounding you or what is going to come. Fear not, God is in control. Something the disciples would reflect on as they walk through the days of Christ's death, an unbelievable trial and challenge that they did not expect would come. And this is exactly the point of the disciples of Christ. They're they're learning what it means and how they are to how they are to continue to learn throughout the process of of Jesus's glorification. Verse 16 shows us the disciples don't understand until Jesus is glorified. They don't completely grasp what is happening. These things the disciples did not understand at the first But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. They didn't comprehend all that was going on as the scene was unfolding. John says it wasn't until he was glorified that they remembered. As a side note, I, I believe even here John is pointing us to see the role of the promised ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of all those who are born again. This is the way the Holy Spirit operates in in the lives of God's children, in the lives of the disciples. He works in our lives to illuminate God's word, to bring to remembrance those things which we have read, to make sense of of the, the scenes that happen in our lives against the backdrop of God's word. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and applies it into our lives and into our circumstances and situations. See, that's going to happen for the disciples as they will remember all of this will come to mind and they will remember what has happened, what they did to Jesus and how they put him on the donkey and how it fulfilled scripture and prophecy. So the glorification of Jesus has been a process. We've seen it as we've walked through the gospel of John. Jesus has been glorified 
and he is being glorified and will be glorified. We saw it from the beginning, but we most recently saw it in John eleven four when Jesus says of Lazarus' sickness, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And so this day, where Jesus' triumphal entry and he's marching in, this day shows us the convergence of the crowds and the followers and the disciples and the Pharisees, which will soon climax in Christ's death on the cross. Then it'll be followed by his resurrection and his ascension to the Father and gifting of the Holy Spirit to carry out his ministry in the lives of his followers. John is pointing us to see that in a few days, Jesus, the Passover lamb, will be sacrificed. And so we see the kingly glory of Christ isn't seen through pomp and circumstance of a royal welcome. No, the the kingly glory is, is instead seen through the lowly service carried out on the cross. The second group that we see in the crowd in verse 17, he had continued to. They had continued to witness about him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. I think this is an important uh, aspect for us to see or important truth we need to see in the text. The crowd who had seen what Jesus had done, they had witnessed his power. They had witnessed his deed and word and deed. They had seen the power of Christ. Never had anyone performed such a miracle as this. And you know what they continued to do? They continued to testify about what they had saw Jesus do. All of this foreshadows Christ's work on the cross. But it also challenges us practically. And the practical challenge comes down to this. It's a hard question. When was the last time that we shared with another person the way God worked in our lives and raised us from the dead? When was the last time that we we shared with someone else about the work that Christ had done in our lives? Then another question, do we share with such conviction that others want to know about what Jesus has done and, and, and what he has done in our lives? Do we share with enough conviction that people want to know who this Jesus is who has given us life? These can be challenging questions for us. We see this crowd in verse 17 who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It was amazing. Even more amazing is the way that Christ regenerates us and gives us spiritual life. Causing us, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, to be forgiven and to have eternal life by the, by the life imparted to us through His Spirit, through the work that He has done on the cross. And so verse 18 tells us, for this reason also the people went and met Him because they had heard that He had performed this sign. They had heard, they, they, had, they had been testified to, the witness had gone out, and they had heard about what Jesus had done. And they wanted to see this one. In verse 19, John highlights for us the Pharisees. The frustration that the Pharisees had, they were frustrated because they, 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 they couldn't get on board with the insurrectionist named Jesus. In fact, they said the world has gone after him. 
And they point us to see the, the greater reality of Jesus' mission being accomplished. I want you to see this. Think back to John three seventeen, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Here the Pharisees speak another word that has greater depth than they realize, like Caiaphas when he prophesies that Christ would die for the nation. So the Pharisees here say, the world is going after him. It's the point of his mission to bring the world to salvation. That's what Christ came for, to redeem the world. And so Jesus is not only king of the Jews. I want us to see that he's also king of all people. He's king of all people. Verses 20 through 23, he's king of the world. In verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. There were some Greeks who had showed up to worship. They were proselytes. They were God-fearing Greeks who, who had grown tired of the immoral pantheon of gods that were promoted by, by the Greek religion and by the Greek culture. They were noble Greeks who had converted to Judaism. They were followers of one God, believed in monotheism. And these Greeks came and they wanted to see this rabbi that they had heard so much about. They wanted to see this man, Jesus. And so what do they do? They come to one of the disciples who has a Greek name. Maybe, that, maybe that's the reason they came to him, Philip. And they said, hey, we want to see Jesus. Philip doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so Philip says, okay. So he takes them to Andrew. And Andrew, there's some, there's some Greeks over here. They want to see Jesus. And so what does Andrew do? Andrew says, okay, well, let's take them to Jesus. And so Andrew takes them to Jesus. So they approach Philip. And then Philip approaches Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip together, they, 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 they go and they approach Jesus. You know, Philip didn't know what to do, and we, we've made this point before. I think it bears repeating. Andrew knew exactly what to do. What we see Andrew doing, whenever we see Andrew highlighted in the gospel, we see him bringing others to Jesus. That's what Andrew does. That's his role as a disciple. We see him bringing others to Christ. We saw it in chapter 1, verses 41 and 42, where Andrew brings and introduces Simon Peter, his brother, to Jesus. Then we also see in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, where Andrew brings this little lad to Jesus so that bread and fish can be multiplied to feed the multitudes. We see here Andrew bringing the Greeks to Jesus. It's a fitting picture here for Andrew. He's seen as bringing the world to Jesus. I think it's a fitting picture of the role of Jesus' disciples. What do they do? Well, Jesus' disciples, they, they bring the world to Jesus. They bring Jesus to the world. Such is our calling, brothers and sisters. We are to be a people consumed with this responsibility in our discipleship. We are to be a people consumed with bringing the world to Jesus and bringing Jesus to the world. It's part of our great calling as believers. So when they approach Jesus, they tell him, verse 23, Jesus responds saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John uses this phrase, the hour in his gospel, throughout his gospel, to represent the steady unfolding witness of, of God's sovereign plan. 
just a quick cursory view through from John chapter 2 through where we are now in the, in the gospel reveals several places where this has happened. In John chapter 2 verse 4, where Jesus is at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. His mom comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus says to the woman at the well, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming, verse 23, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. John five twenty five. truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, an hour is coming and is now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 6. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. And in chapter 7, verse 8, he says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. You see how this time and hour has foreshadowed what is coming for Christ John 7.30, so they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. In 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught them in the temple, and no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. The paradox of John's gospel and Jesus' redemption of the world is at hand here. Jesus' hour has come. All of his ministry points to this, this time and this, this season. He will soon be glorified. And this is the point to which his ministry has brought him. Jesus' glorification won't be seen through exaltation and some worldly sense of glorification. Instead, Jesus will show that true glory is unconditionally linked to lowly service. When Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he speaks of the cross and the direction that he's heading. He speaks of the cross that awaits him, whereby he'll lay down his life as a scapegoat for God's creation. He'll, he'll lay down his life in service as a substitute to redeem us from sin and to save us from an otherwise inescapable wrath of God. As king of the world. Of all people, Jesus' glory is seen in his lowly service. And like the king who came and lowered himself, humbled himself to serve creation, he calls us as followers, as subjects of his kingdom to follow him in his example of lowly service. So not only do we see Jesus as king of the Jews, the one who has promised and come to fulfill all scripture. We see him as king of all people, king of the world, the one who has come to bring redemption, not just to the Jews, but to all of the world, all ethnicities, all people groups everywhere. And so we see Christ as the humble servant. And now we see him as king of our lives, this very personal portion of the text where we see him as not just king of those and of them, but king of us, king over our own lives. As king of our lives, this text really communicates two points for those who are subjects of Christ the king, those who are his disciples and followers. 
The first one is that we would follow, and the second is we would be called to serve. So the call to follow and the call to serve the one who is king over our, our lives. In verse 24, Jesus speaks and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. See, the call to follow in verses 24 and 25 is a call that has a great cost. And the cost of following is to lay down one's life. You remember Simon Says? Remember playing that game as a child? I, I used to play that game, Simon Says. I used to love that game. It was fun. I loved playing Simon Says. I, I wanted to be the last one standing, the one who was the most obedient to Simon. But so often I would get distracted and I would lose quick. <laughs> I would be one of the first ones seated instead. You know, the goal, of course, was to follow the leader and do what Simon said, not necessarily what Simon did. Simon was tricky. He was a bad leader, right? By all accounts, he would tell you to do one thing and then he would do something else. Or he'd start doing something and they up. Simon didn't say. Well, Christ, our king, is different. The call to follow is not one to follow of trickery. It's not one to follow a bad leader. It's not a call to follow someone who's going to lead us into a, a dangerous place or situations where he is not in control. The call to follow is one that is, is, is to come behind and to, to, to go where he is leading. As the good shepherd, we've already seen that he's the one who leads us into green pastures. He leads us to places uh, where he refreshes us and he, he teaches us and he, uh, he cares for us. And so Jesus modeling what the good shepherd does in laying down his life says in verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus is speaking about what he's speaking about the cross, isn't he? He's speaking about where he's going and that he is about to die. He's about to die for the sins of the world. And what the disciples need to understand here is unless he dies, they will not multiply. But when he dies, he will send the gift of the Holy Spirit and then they will be led of the Spirit and then they will begin multiplying as his disciples and spreading this life that only he can give. This is what we need to see, that the follow, the call to follow Christ is the call to die to self. It is a call that the disciples hear. It's a, a call that they hear. They must die to self. Now, the disciples don't even realize exactly how this will cost their life. In fact, all the disciples but one tradition tells us died a martyr's death. John was the one who didn't die the martyr's death but was exiled to the Isle of Patmos and died, tradition says, of old age. But here's the thing. He's talking to the disciples. He's he's foreshadowing what's going to happen in the laying down of his life so that the disciples then would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when he was re resurrected and that they would then proclaim and preach this good news throughout all of the world. 
And so he's speaking to the reality of this call for his disciples. If they're truly disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, they too, they would have to die. You know, I think about an oak tree. An oak tree is a magnificent tree. It's majestic and it's beautiful, especially live oaks. And I think about these oak trees and how great oak trees are, how they're strong and they're firm and they stand the winds and stand the test of time. They last for a long time. And you know those oak trees, they, they sprout up from one tiny little acorn, don't they? When that acorn falls off the tree, it ceases to live. It's on the ground. But get the picture of what happens when that acorn is it's taken and then it's dug, the ground is dug and it's placed in the ground and then <clears throat> it's covered back up and it's watered and it's fertilized. That, tr- that acorn that was dead then produces life and the sprout comes out of the ground and as it comes out, it grows into this huge, majestic tree. And guess what happens from that tree? It produces millions of acorns over the course of its lifetime. All from one little acorn. All from the death of one acorn. Similarly, the disciple is to see that when one dies to self, much fruit is being produced in his or her life and will be produced through his or her life. Jesus is calling us to a life of selfless service. He's calling his disciples to be those who follow him, who aren't pursuing self, but are pursuing Christ above self. Think about Romans chapter six, which talks about being uh, being dying with Christ and being raised in in uh, in in newness of life. And Romans chapter six, verse uh, verse six, uh, verse four. Paul says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father. So we, too, might walk in newness of life. Verse eight, he says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has master over him for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be, listen, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and go on presenting your bodies as instruments of sin or unrighteousness, but present them to God as instruments of righteousness to be used by God. Or Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that I've, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. You see, the call for the disciple is a call to die to self in following Christ. The disciple of Jesus is one who dies to self for the glory of God. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus Tells his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? He must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You see, as king of our lives, Jesus calls us to follow him. And when calling us to follow him, it's a call that we would die to self. He says in verse 25 of John 12, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. What does Jesus mean? The one who loves loses and the one who hates gains. What's he talking about here? Jesus is saying to love one's life in this world 
means to selfishly live in pursuit of of one's own pleasures. It means to elevate oneself above God. The one who lives for self has made self into the idol. And their worship consists of self-worship. Their lives consist of self-gratification and self-exaltation. Always concerned with their own wants above the wants or needs of others. To love one's life is to live in rebellion against God. That's what Jesus is saying. The one who loves his life will ultimately lose it. The one who finds himself, herself, living in rebellion against God in any way. Jesus is saying those who live in rebellion against God lose their life. Then he defines how one would hate his or her life. By saying he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Now, the one that hates his life, it it doesn't necessarily mean hate in the sense that we hate as we have great disdain for a person. Hate is such a strong word and could be a malicious word. But I don't want to soften it too much either. To hate one's life doesn't mean to hate in the sense of the depth of the word hate, but it, it, it simply means to love less. It means to put to death the selfish pursuits at the cost of following Christ. It means choosing God's way above our own way. It means positively to exalt Christ in dying to self. It means to exalt Christ in our marriage. It means to exalt Christ in our parenting. It means to exalt Christ in our workplace, in our vocations. It means to exalt Christ in our recreation as we are recreated during our recreation, experiencing rest. It means that we exalt Christ in all of these ways in our lives. We exalt Christ by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. There's a great cost in following the king when he becomes king of our lives. And that great cost is there must be a death, a burial, and a resurrection. Where I die to self, I'm buried with Christ, and I'm raised to newness of life. But there's a great reward. And the great reward is to be with Christ for eternity. To have eternal Life to be, as verse 26 says, to be one who is honored by the father. The life of the disciple of Christ is a life of selfless service. The king of our lives calls us to follow and he calls us to serve. And he says the father will honor the one who is serving Christ. So what does that mean? What does it mean to say that the Father will will honor those who serve Christ? Well, it means that God will welcome us into his presence and give us eternal fellowship with him. All those who are serving Christ. This isn't to say that we earn our salvation. No, it's saying service is the result of the life transforming work where God gives us life by the gift of Christ, the son How truly great that day will be when we're in the presence of the Father for eternity. Where God the Father will esteem all who have loved Christ the Son more than they have loved themselves in their own lives. You see, those who follow and those who who serve 
will be gathered together that day at the marriage supper of the Lamb and will be seated at the table with the King in a place of honor. And God the Father will honor His children by bringing us into His presence and into His great fellowship. The King is coming. The question that we ask this morning is, am I ready? Should the King return? Am I ready? The question I ask you is, is He going to welcome you into His kingdom? Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells those who come to him, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have you uh, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done many wonderful works? And I'll say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Will Christ the king, will he welcome you? We see the witness of the crowd in this text and we're challenged uh, through the testimony of the crowd. And as believers, we're challenged if he is king over our lives, king of our lives, is, is our testimony like that of the disciples where we are speaking the word of God to others and they are drawn to Jesus because of the spirit working within us and our, our testimony about what Christ has done? Would you say that your life is consumed with the responsibility of bringing others to Jesus, bringing the world to Jesus and bringing Jesus to the world? I pray this morning as we consider this text, Jesus Christ, the King, the one who is king over our lives, the one who is king over all, the King is coming. And I pray this morning as we consider this text that we will be challenged and encouraged to live for Christ, to live for his glory, to live out serving him and in his kingdom. Let us pray. Father. As we meditate on your word and think upon your word this morning during a, a time of response, I pray that you would reveal to us perhaps areas in our life where we are failing and we need to repent and we need to walk obediently with you. But I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us by your spirit. Lord, that you would teach us how to live joyfully in submission to to Christ our King, as we see the humble example of our King, we pray, God, that you would teach us how to walk in humility. Oh, Father, encourage our hearts to be humble servants. Encourage our hearts to be like those disciples who, who learned their responsibility is to bring the world to you and to bring you to the world. Let us be faithful, Lord, in carrying out your calling in our lives as your subjects, as your disciples, as your followers. We exalt you this morning and we worship you and we sing your praise together as we lift our voices. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.